0: Good afternoon, everyone from from Singapore here and wherever you may be, good morning, especially to our distinguished guest speaker today, Professor Jonas Otterbeck, who is tuning in from from London. Good morning to you. And wherever you may be, good evening as well. So today we are having a webinar uh, on behalf of uh, the Middle East Institute in Singapore. Uh, My name is Clemens Che, and I'm a research fellow with the Institute and we are pleased to have a webinar on the politics of Islamic pop, and and this is part of our diffusion of ideas research cluster at the institute. And today we are we are pleased and delighted to have Professor Yunus Otterbeck, who is the professor of Islamic studies and the head of research at the Institute for the Study of Muslim Civilizations as part of the Aga Khan University Centre in London. So over the last. 25 years, a bit about uh, our guest speaker, Professor Jonas Otterbeck has research about contemporary Islam in Europe, often with political relevance. His most recent research culminates in a forthcoming book, which will be released this August. Uh, It's entitled, The Awakening of Islamic Pop Music, and it's contracted with Edinburgh University Press. It, It covers Islamic pop music, and especially the media company a record label Awakening Records and its artists like Maher Zayn, Harris J, and Raif. He also has an interest in research on music censorship and an engagement for artists' right to expression. And he has also published widely on the situation on Muslim pupils in, in Swedish schools, the identity constructions of Muslim youth and the understanding of Islam. The representation of Islam and Muslims, revivalist discourse, active citizenship among Muslims, among other topics. So today we are very glad to have him to deliver a guest lecture here. A bit about his upcoming book, which will form, uh, I'm sure, that an integral part of today's webinar, but not solely confined to this. the, the themes in, in his book. It analyzes the contribution of popular music to the development of contemporary interpretations of Islam, it uses awakening records as a case study to explore the relationship between Islamic popular music, genres, and wider Islamic discourse. So the political side to music, as, as Professor Otterbeck describes in his book, in his forthcoming book, consists in the engagement in the social, the distribution of resources, and the insistence of making such a space for an Islamic ethical discourse in, in the publicness of societies. Publicness, of course, is also another theme covered in, in his works. So much of Professor Autoback's work has also has also covered uh, music censorship, and we at the institute have covered uh Islamic charities as part of our uh, research at the institute, and we we've tend we've tended to focus a lot on uh, monetary terms you know so today we have uh, professor Otterbeck looking at looking at, at, at the idea from from a different angle from from a music uh, genre and how it is is socially understood and also has polit- political implications so without further ado uh, i will pass on uh, the floor to professor professor Otterbeck, and after after his lecture which will last for about 30 to 40 minutes, we will have the Q&A, which I invite our audience to, of course, put down their questions in the chat box or uh, raise your hand through the Zoom function and we can then unmute you to ask your questions. So, over.
1: So Thank you very much for the introduction and, and for inviting me. Uh, of course, it would be a, a fantastic honor to be in place, but in these days and age, we simply have to make do with with these communication uh, platforms, which are great because that has given me the chance to to discuss with you uh, and uh, prepare this. Right, so what I will do is that I'll share a PowerPoint and uh, I have a manuscript. Uh, I don't really know where to place the manuscript because I don't want it in camera. And um, well, my desk does not allow me just to place it anywhere. I'm going to hold it and see how that works. But please allow me to share the PowerPoint first. like this so um, the politics of islamic pop then and um i'm going to first take you to this slide with um, a structure that i call layers in this case and the idea of layers i picked up from a book it's it's to sort of go through different layers of your empirical material and see how the different layers together will build up something uh, larger than the individual argument. So there'll be a background about The Company Awakening and uh, and about Mahazain, and then I'm going to build it up from the first record issue, a specific song, and then the question, who are you musicking with? And then I'll go into ethics and politics. Now, musicking might sound like a strange word, but I'll uh, explain it more eventually. So Awakening is one of many Islamic media companies that are sought to meet the challenges of modern popular culture by appropriating modern culture's forms and transforming the content. Awakening has emerged as one of the most important global corporations in terms of pop music inspired by Islam. So if they get to describe themselves, it sounds like this. Awakening is a pioneering global Islamic media company that has achieved outstanding success in music production and publishing. They seek to educate and entertain within a framework which is innovative, inspiring and influence social change. The Awakening team are committed to a vision that fuses creative flair with Islamic values and which promotes entrepreneurship in culture and arts in a contemporary and dynamic manner. This is how they would like to see themselves. And yet it holds some truth. They have been very successful. As of 2018, they have, for example, produced more than 400 songs, 60 music videos. 2016, they reached 1 billion views on their official YouTube channel. In early 2019, they reached 3 billion and today is 4.3 billion views. They have sold more than 5 million albums, have a number of platinum records, they have arranged more than 1,500 concerts and raised more than 25 million USD in charity. So in short, they have been busy and it's not even their only trade to do music. It all started in 2000 with two young London-based men, Sharif Banna and wali Urahman. rahman when they tried to get a book on Muhammad's life published that Sharif had written when he was only 16, encouraged by his father, who is a Hanafi scholar and tafsir expert. The book target, the the book audience was uh, teenagers. This is the cover. In 2000, this one was printed, the Sira of the Final Prophet, And all copies, all 5,000 copies sold within 12 months. And since they have produced a number of editions of that specific book. But as it took off, they were joined by two other young men, Barah a student friend of Sharif's, and Wasim Melek, an American Lebanese engineer who had befriended Sharif when he had noted the book. They registered together awakening and went into business together. All of them had a background of being active in Sunni Muslim circles, and not all, but most of their dads were too. From the beginning, a key idea was to increase the quality of Islamic media products, better paper, better print, nicer covers, more considered layouts, and so on. The company struggled the first years. They published books and audio CDs with religious lectures and also actually Muslim stand-up comedy that some people found really hard to stomach. None of these products secure the company financially. On the side, Sharif Banna and Barakhariji were engaged in community work of various sorts, including working with youth. And according to them, acquiring an understanding of what youth lacked and wished to find in Islamic communities. In 2003, as a result of a discussion between Barak and his childhood French friend, Siamak Radamanesh Berenjan, now known as Sami Yusuf and portrayed here on the slide, Awakenings' first music project saw the light of day Al Mu'allim, the debut, the debut album of Sami Yusuf from 2004. And Al Mu'allim means teacher, which of course then is Muhammad. Sami Yusuf's debut CD went on sale early in 2004 and quickly sold far better than expected. 30,000 copies in the first year. Anticipation had been raised skillfully um, by a strategy letting Sami Yusuf open for Malaysia's Muslim superstar group Raihan when Raihan was on tour in the UK in 2003. At that time, Raihan was king of the new pop nasheed trend, and nasheed basically means Islamic song in this as a shorthand. Interestingly, Raihan themselves had grown out of the Al Arkam movement in uh, Malaysia or the da- Dawah movement in uh, Malaysia. Uh, a movement that was politically banned in 94. To promote the album, a decision was taken to make a high cost music video of the title track. In the music video, Sami Yusuf is portrayed as an affluent, devout photographer, helping others, educating children, paying respect to his mother. In other words, living Islamic ethics on the screen, signaling affluence, while singing a song about how Allah has offered us the best of teachers, and yet we strayed from his path. The video hit a chord and Sami Yusuf, he became a superstar overnight. For example, Islamic superstar televangelist, Egyptian Amar Khalid, took the music to heart and promoted it on his program, uh, Sunnah Al-Hayah, Life Makers, and on his web pages. At the peak of attention, Sami Yusuf was a full-fledged pop star, followed by media and screaming fans. He left Awakening 2008 for new challenges, however. With Sami gone, the situation became pretty desperate. Awakening decided to find uh, an investor ready to give the company the necessary risk capital, and eventually closing a deal with Saudi Arabian businessmen Sheikh Sultan Al Turki, who became chairman of Awakening in the process. 2003 was a year of dramatic change, but the coming year was productive and creative. They were ready to launch the new signed artist Mahazain's first album, Thank You Allah. And this is Mahar on the screen there. Lebanese Swedish Mahazain's debut album took the fans of Pop by storm, especially in Malaysia and Indonesia. Maha even outsold Malaysians Rehan on their own home turf. And for the second time, Awakening had managed to produce a star and the crisis of 2008 was over. Maha was born in Lebanon in 1981, grew up in Sweden. Maha was an, an inspiring musician when he came into contact with Red One, a Moroccan Swedish producer, who became his mentor. In 2007, he joined Red One, when Red One moved to the US to seek new opportunity. And as you see, he made a great success. You can read who he has collaborated with on the screen. But Maher, he returned pretty quickly to Sweden, rather disillusionized with life in the US. Instead, back in Sweden, Maher started to sing with a vocal group in a mosque, where he was scouted by a guy called Zana Muhammad, a Muslim entrepreneur living in Sweden, who happened to know Sharif and a demo was sent. And soon Maher was in Cairo to for talks with the Awakening leadership. Maher pointed out to me that Awakening had been very interested in his character. Was he the genuine Muslim guy he said he was? And at the same time, one of the first things that Maher raised was to discuss with Awakening about their understanding of Islam's position on music. After a week of mutual inspection, a deal was signed. Mahasain has released three albums since with original material and a new one is on the way. All Mahasain's albums are released in several different versions, including different language versions and vocals only production, meaning taking out the instruments, replacing them with digital voices, imitating, instruments and selling it on the golf market. The debut album, uh, Thank You Allah, is introduced by the phrase, Allah Akbar, Allah is the greatest, and the first words are heard, the last being Alhamdulillah, praise Allah. In this way, two of the most famous Islamic phrases frame the album, presenting it as a pious act. In an interview, Maher pointed out that my music is a message of Islam, but I want people to understand what Islam is. It's a message of peace, brotherhood, humanity, respect, and love. The lyrics to Thank You, Allah has four main topics. Praise for Allah, homage to Muhammad, a spiritual awakening after being lost, and love. An engagement with the betterment of the world is easily detected in Awakenings promotion material and the company's recurrent cooperation with charity organizations like Islamic Relief or the UNHCR. CEO Sharif Banna, who has written a PhD thesis from Al-Azhar in Egypt, in Sharia, argues that Islam contains a prophetic model for engagement. So listen to his words here civic engagement is not limited to political participation only the prophetic model is one that calls for engaging with all spheres of civic life our challenge as muslims and citizens wherever we may live is to articulate a vision transcending identity politics and move towards what we may be termed islamic humanism our prophet was sent as a mercy to all mankind His was a message rooted in ethics and hum- human dignity In our quest to impart the radiance of this prophetic mercy on a social level, particularly focus needs to be paid to areas such as good governance, environmental issues, social justice, and combating materialism, poverty, and illiteracy. Remember this quote because I will return to it a couple of times. The importance of civil engagement can be heard in the songs of several awakening artists. Now I'm going to move to a specific song called Palestine Will Be Free. The political ethical authenticity sought by artists and awakening is at time made clear and explicit. So let me dwell on this song, Palestine Will Be Free. The description will be the springboard to discuss the political engagement of awakening. The music is written by Mahazain together with the Egyptian awakening artist, Hamza Amire. Uh, with lyrics by Maher and Bara Kharechi, who heads Awakening Music. Bara, apart from having a B.A. in law from SOAS in London, also holds a B.A. in Islamic jurisprudence from al Azhar. Bara grew up in a devout family with connections to political Islam, and his father is the well-known Tunisian politician Rashid Ghanoushi, starter of the Nahda party. So let us examine the lyrics, the music, and it's a company music video, and then trace the genealogical layers of these. The lyrics, and I'm not going to read this so you can read them parallel to what, what I'm uh, talking. The lyrics do not call for military resistance, just for people to rise up in dignity and refuse to be suppressed and refuse to count, countenance the repression of others. Rather that making explicit reference, uh, ra- sorry, rather than making explicit reference to religion, well, there is one actually: uh, your soul will always be free. Towards the end, the text queries: What happens to our human rights? What happened to the sanctity of life? Appealing to global community to take responsibility, referring both to human rights and to moral positions. Still. The song stressed suffering, nationalist nostalgia, resistance, dignity, and the refusal to bow down, much in the way that political nasheeds, that is Islamic songs, do. And I'll return to this later. Now I'm gonna stop sharing for just a second here, or rather I'll do like this. And I'll uh, play you a snippet of the song. Listening to the song, we get a further impression not available just by reading lyrics, the passionate tone in Maher's voice, for example, enhanced by the melodic drama and the reed flute tonal colours signals sort of honest engagement with the serious subject addressed. The drum intro is a couple of bars in 8-8, it's a military sound to it, I perceive it as belonging to the Palestinian side, sort of ushering in the resistance. Putting lyrics and the song in the context of the album, a layer of deep, devout engagement in Islam is added, even if the lyrics of this particular this song does not mention Islam. If we um, add, the lyric, uh, add the layer of the music video, It enriches the impressions yet again, and I'll play this while I'm I'm talking without the sound. The animated video shows the heartbreaking imbalance between Israeli tanks and stone-throwing children and youth. The destruction of civil society is signaled by the rubble the tanks drive through and the ruined buildings surrounding the scene. The music video consists of visual, rather A rather apparent political statement about the dignified physical resistance of Palestinian youth and partly moral corrupt uh, military. I'll take away the sound completely. Like that, sorry for that. The music video uses the iconic image after a while of a lone person, in this case, a small girl. Facing a tank, causing the fighting to pause for a while, the video is only one. The only one where Maher appears without a headgear. He's not smiling his characteristics, warm smile, and it adds to the drama that he is not fashionable dressed as in other videos. While references to Islam are absent from the video. Uh, the lyrics, the video contains a scene, which you just saw, when a tank driving soldier purposely blows a minaret to pieces. Towards the end, we will see the ruined minaret again, that can be seen in the top left corner when a tank driver stands down and drives off and the camera focuses on the face of the girl who won a small victory. The song is introduced differently in the animated video. The sound of war are amplified, including the roars of jets attacking strafing strafing civilians and firing rockets at school buildings with children inside, among them our girl hero. After this, the song proceeds as on the record, apart from the occasional bomb blast that is enhanced from the video. When the video was launched, both Bara and Maher highlighted the message of peace and the importance of ending violence and bloodshed. In official press release, Maher said the following. It was during the bombing and attack of Gaza in January 2009 when I was moved to make a song about Palestine. But my first aim for making the track Palestine Will Be Free was to remind myself and everyone else that it's still going on and that we should always give at least one thought every day to these human beings. But just like us, their only crime is that they're born Palestinian, and who has any control over where he or she has, are born. Palestine is a symbol for struggling against injustice. So when I sing about Palestine, I'm also singing about all other countries around the world in which my fellow brothers and sisters in humanity are suffering from injustice, irrespective of their faith and ethnicity. Further, in the same promotional material, Bara states, we at Awakening Record have tried to use art and music to highlight the injustices being visited upon the Palestinians and to show our solidarity with them. This animated music video for our new star artist, magazine is just another step in that direction, and certainly not the last, inshallah. The aim of the message of the music video is to highlight the plight of the Palestinians and show reality as it is, but at the same time send out a message that we hope bloodshed and violence ends and peace prevails. As can be noted, the words are carefully chosen. The song is about injustice done to humanity as a whole, not necessarily Muslims, and the motives for helping them are moral, not necessarily Islamic. To summarize, looked at in isolation, the song is primarily an anti-war song about human dignity. But adding layers to this, it is positioned in a contemporary Islamic activist tradition of protest intermingled with Palestinian pride, homeland nostalgia, heroic descriptions of its fighters, and the clear signal that the oppressor is destroying not only infrastructure and lives, but also Islamic buildings equally insensitive to all. Due to these signals, it is clear that the song and its different layers are interrelated with a genre of political songs, often called nasheeds, produced since the 1970s in the eastern Mediterranean region, for example, by Hamas and by Hezbollah. This genre in itself signals an affinity to a certain global discourse, call it meaning-making worldview, if you prefer, about politics, suffering, and justice, shared widely in Muslim environments. So we can then ask the question, who are you musicking with? Okay. To have a political function, lyrics do not have to contain political statements. In fact, a song by an acclaimed artist might work as well. At times, lyrics that are too explicit will only be censored or cause arrest. Some caution is often called for and ambiguity does not lessen the potential value of a song. If we, discuss, if we distinguish between social movements and social movement organizations, we gain a tool enabling greater precision. While the later have an organization and an operational unit with a course, a social movement, is rather more loosely construed. According to Della Porta and Diani, social movements are essentially informal networks based on shared belief. They have participants, not members. Individual acts from similar cognitive map, uh, sorry, individuals act from similar cognitive maps and A shared sense of justice that take together, reinforce the feeling of belonging and of identity is at hand. Yet social movements harbor many different positions, among them what Ayer and Jameson call movement artists. Movement artists are those who manage to capture the core spirit and message of a movement in their art. At times making songs that are appropriated as anthems by participants in the movement. Such songs can have an immense importance. They may draw people to the movement and function ritually when sung by participants, conjuring up emotions of belonging, meaning, and righteousness. A good book about music and politics is this one by John Street, by the way. Now, why mention this? Well, via the Mehazane song discussed above, Awakening signals a clear affinity with the sentiments and sense of justice that mobilise support for the Palestinians. Awakening is obviously not a social movement organisation, it is a commercial company. But could it be said to provide movement artists for social movements? Sean Foley claimed that the songs of Hamza Amira and Mahazain managed to capture a sentiment during the period prior to the Arab Spring in 2011 and then became important soundtracks to the Egyptian Revolution uh, without the artists themselves causing or organizing demonstration. Quoting, their work reflected a widespread feeling of discontent, a desire for a different future, a collective vision for how Arabs could reach that future. This is, of course, very difficult to substantiate, but music has a documented ability to enable people to gather, engage, and feel empowered. Mahazain and Hamza Namira's songs, calling for dignity through nonviolent personal resistance and revival of Islam, came to be appropriated by different kinds of political actors. Christopher Small, created the concept musicking, as he wanted to stress music as an act to music. The term is meant to be descriptive, indicating that both performance and, for example, listening as an audience, are acts of musicking. It enables us to ask the question, what is the meaning and consequences of musicking together? By following the awakening artists on the internet and on tour, I've been able to watch parts of a very large number of live performances. Some of these gigs are attended by well-known politicians. The symbolically claiming of artists by politician, political leaders is quite obvious at these occasions. Let me give you three examples from roughly the same period and then suggest an interpretation. In May 2014, in connection with an official Ramadan celebration in Grozny, Chechny, Mahazain performed on stage. President Ramazan Kadyrov and a superstar Islamic clergy, uh, the UAE-based Yemeni scholar and Sufi, Habib Ali al-Jifri, were sitting in the front row, singing along to the music. A number of other clerics were also in the same row. Mahazain, Sang a duet with Aishat, Kadyrov's daughter, thus paying extra respect to the Kadirov family. Kadirov is known to seek political legitimacy through Islam and to be fiercely anti Salafi and anti Wahhabi. In 2014, two months later, 2nd July, a week before the presidential election, Mahazain played a gig in Jakarta for the presidential candidate. Uh, Prabowo Subianto. Awakening was contracted by the media group backing up Subianto's campaign. Awakening already had a commercial agreement with it, being one of Indonesia's largest media group. At the gig, members of the Indonesian Partai Partai Keadilan Sejatera, sorry for my pronunciation, Prosperous Justice Party, uh, which was supporting the candidate, were present. The party supposedly drew its supporters from the Muslim middle class, especially in Jakarta, and is presented as moderate, even though its critics suspect a hidden agenda. In the middle of the Mahazain song, Maulaya, the politicians in the front row and their ADs took the stage dancing breaking away, awakenings carefully upheld cold about not dancing on stage for moral reasons. This appropriation of the central stage pushed the musicians, including the singer, to the background, and the politicians stayed for quite a while. Towards the end of the show, Maha politely expressed support for pravovo who, by the way, was not elected, but you might know that. During a discussion of the above with CEO Sharif Banna, he observed that awakening engagement was not with a political element, but with a business partner, Indonesia. Meanwhile, admitting that that's when the line sometimes get blurry between politics, media, and art. He further stressed that awakening consciously avoid political groups and Islamists, that's his words, and its artists do not play for specific religious groups driven by an ideology. Awakening may engage with these, but does not want to be a vehicle for them. Still, at a show in Turkey in April or May, 2015, ma left the stage while still performing a song and went to the first row to embrace the Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan and remained with him for a while. Erdogan later addressed the audience. The concert was arranged by a Turkish Students' Union. The bond between Awakening and Erdogan has been nurtured over time and has, among other things, resulted in a presidential campaign song celebrating Erdogan. Hasat Vakti, Harvest Time, recorded by Meher and released in the summer of 2018. Earlier the same year, Meher sang his song Palestine Will Be Free at the rally zulm Kudus-e-Destek Damn the oppression, support Jerusalem, headlined by Erdogan in support and solidarity with the Palestinians. What do these three cases have in common? Political leaders and organizations searching for legitimacy through Islam are celebrated or allowed to connect to Awakenings artists, in this case Mahazain. These are not just any occasions where some powerful people happen to be present, these are sought by political actors to give them legitimacy. Awakening is contracted to bride entertainment, accepting the possible association with open eyes and prepared praise and salutations. Does this mean then that Awakening should be viewed through the prism of a certain type of political Islam? Well, no, it's really, it's not that simple. To start with, Awakening organizes concerts in a large variety of settings, Being a highly sought-after collaboration partner in Muslim-majority context, the company is bound to be musicking with a wide variety of actors. Secondly, it is important to understand the breadth of the networks that people who engage themselves in Islam as what I call an Islamic ethical empowerment discourse might connect to. Politically, culturally, or let's call it um, activist Muslims, are likely to have different goals. And support different means, yet might belong to the same extended networks. I say might, because I have not done a proper network analysis. I can merely presume as much. Asif Bayat stresses that many with a strong social engagement are not really interested in meddling with party politics, as they tend primarily to seek to influence, and I quote, civil society, behavior, attitudes, culture symbols, and value systems. Such changes may, of course, cause transformation in the formal political system in the long run, but those engaged are not seeking political office, merely what they experience at a better future. Now compare this to the quote that I read before by Sharif with the stress on civil society. Many Muslim movements, political actors, artists, and intellectuals take part in this general Islamic ethical empowerment discourse, bringing people into contact with each other, even though they do not necessarily share views and visions. As if Bayad has suggested, the concept imagined solidarity to highlight some aspects of these networks. It has the merit of indicating shared sentiments that presume solidarity and possible collaboration, but it does not imply that actual cooperation or actual solidarity is in place. Since the Islamic ethical empowerment discourse is global and is manifested in very different ways, I feel it would stretch the concept social movement too far to view it as such. It would be like Laban and all those engaged in the betterment of the environment as part of the same social movement, regardless of whether they are motivated by religious, political, philosophical views, lifestyle choices, or agricultural business calculations. Rather, this Islamic ethical empowerment discourse feeds into a number of different social movements, and is further manifested in a multitude of social movement organizations. Which organizations and people that are included in various arenas is dependent on factors such as networks and personal preferences. It also changes according to how someone or an organization is evaluated at different times. Organizations and individuals may suddenly become politically problematic or unwanted. Most will have to take discourses other than their own into account such as media representation, to avoid the risk of being tainted by the tarnished reputation of others, especially when acting in non-Muslim environments. This is particularly so given the documentation uh, on events on internet, and it tends increasingly to break down the barriers between non-Muslim and Muslim environments, and further to leave traces over time. Reinterpreted and changed positions may be haunted by prior collaborations and preferences, making it increasingly difficult to evaluate and choose collaboration partners. When discussing this uh, with Sharif, he agreed with this framing, emphasizing that he and Bara, when they were in their 20s, they never joined any movement, rather engaged with ideas because ideas were exciting. Instead of accepting a whole package as truth, they carved out their own space by accepting some ideas and criticizing or synthesizing others, regardless of where they origin from. It is tempting to connect all this that I'm talking about to Asaf Bayad's concept post-Islamism, but I'm not entirely happy with the concept. and Islamic, an Islamic, uh, an Islamic ethical empowerment discourse is not necessarily in a post relation to Islamism, neither historical one, nor necessarily an intellectual one. Post-Islamism is far too tied to the idea of social movements. Rather than a broader discourse, admittedly, however, much of what Bayat associate with the concept fits well. Especially his claim that social engagement in post-Islamist movements aim to use media publications, associations, education, fashion, lifestyle, and the new discourse to bring about moral and intellectual change in civil society, which is basically a description of awakening. Bayat also specifies that he considers post-Islamism to be a project that can be conceptualized and strategized by engaging in social problems through an Islamic ethical empowerment discourse as a post-Islamist, if you will. Addressing poverty, illiteracy, abuse, drugs, and lack of self-esteem, social actors challenge states that, should l- that show little or no interest, or for that matter, ability, in improving conditions for the general population. Now, unfortunately, such states are in no short stock in Muslim-majority countries, making civil engagement political, and in many cases, Politically unwanted to those states, Mustafa Husni, the Egyptian superstar media dai, that is Islam promoter, who has collaborated with Awakening several times and used music and promotion videos by Awakening artists in his shows, he fits this picture really well. He promotes talking, taking individual responsibility through personal betterment and social engagement. He's a prominent voice in the Egyptian publicness and has an international following. In his lectures, he approaches Islam holistically rather than through legal rulings on details. This is a very broad trend among the contemporary Islamic intellectuals that complements a stress on ethics, not on folk. Yet, Mustafa Husni is not the leader of social movements, rather, he's part of a broader Islamic ethical empowerment discourse shared with post Islamists and others. I'm going to give you one final example, a rather long one, and then I'll wrap up. This general Islamic ethical empowerment discourse is manifested, among other things, in Islamic conferences. And at conferences, you would like some entertainment, would you not? As an illustration let us examine the guest list of the revival of the Islamic Spirit Conference in Toronto it began in 2001 some of the noted guests in 2009 were <clears throat> habib ali aljafri the scholar who sang with president kadirov uh, hamsa yusuf one of the usa's most well known muslim scholars singer yusuf islam mahzain Sohaib Webb, who has released audio CDs with Awakening. Egyptian superstar televangelist Amr Khaled, who has aired music by Awakening on his show. Theologian Tariq Ramadan, who has published books through Awakening. Abdullah bin bayah Hamsa Yusuf's teacher, who has appeared in many connections with Awakening. And Abdullah Shabbas, the oldest daughter of Malcolm X, an acquaintance of one of the awakening founders. <clears throat> Over the coming years, many of these returned as invited speakers and musicians and others would join, while for several of them, this was not their first appearance. Sami Yusuf performed in 2010, as did Malaysian Rehan. 2011, Shia intellectual and Sufi Said Hussein Nasser made a speech. Sami Yusuf was at the same conference and later, he put some of Nasser's music, Sufi poetry, sorry, to music. Outlandish, who had collaborated with Sami Yusuf during his awakening days, also performed at the same conference. 2012, Masoud Curtis of Awakening, Raihan, and Sami Yusuf performed, and speakers included, among others, Mustafa Ceric, at the time Grand Mufti of Bosnia, and a publicized, however, never published awakening author so they have said that they're going to publish him journalist and muslim celebrity convert christiana baka whose biography had been published by awakening in 2015 daoud warnsby who had appeared on one of awakenings records performed singing a song together with Yusuf islam and daya mustafa husni who i just gave the example who had collaborated with awakening lectured and i could have gone on like this at every convention The Awakening staffers network, according to conference arrangers promotion videos, over 20,000 have attended the conferences each year. So there's quite a lot of people there. Of course, this is not the only large conference. Awakening artists headline a number of conferences each year. Awakening is an active part of extensive networks spanning the globe that gathers Muslims engaged in an overall Islamic ethical empowerment discourse. From most walks of life. As of now, awakening has not been vilified by many. Rather, awakening is a sought-after collaboration partner with which you may want to be seen. But awakening takes risks through its civil engagement. Being associated with Islamic political movements or leaders or social movements might backfire. Sharif Banna claims that Awakening navigated the risk fairly well up until around 2013, but as a result of geopolitical change, much has altered, and it's now more important to be careful about collaboration partners, while past may come back to haunt you. In a discussion 2014 with a human appeal employee as a charity organization, he pointed out that the organization have been doing thorough background checks on potential collaboration partners in the last seven years in a way not done before. Something that has become a necessity if you're engaged in Islam, have become public in a new way through the internet. Finances and collaboration partners sensitive to public opinion might hesitate to engage or continue prior engagements due to risks of being associated with stigmatized actors in my upcoming book i argue that this kind of political engagement of a generation of muslims are growing in importance and that we need to be prepared to study this suggesting that it may be framed with concepts like the islamic empowerment discourse to uh, sorry the islamic ethical empowerment discourse to at least start a conversation and uh, I believe I've just started that conversation. So I'm looking forward to your comments. And on the uh, screen, you now see uh, some of the books and articles, or rather a book coming out in August and some of the articles preceding that book. Um, I'll stop sharing now, I think. and open up for questions and comments and uh, discussions of different sorts.
0: Thank you, Professor Otterbeck for your wonderful presentation. I think that's a, that's a very one-of-a-kind angle where where we, where we have analyzed Islamic charities through music and then through the pop music in general. And Maher Zain, of course, is a, is a very popular name in the, among, in, in the Muslim Ummah. So now we are, we are open to questions from the floor uh come to the QA segment. So if you've got any questions, feel free to raise your hand through the Zoom function, or you could enter your questions in the Zoom chat box and we can uh pass it on to Professor Otterbeck. So while our our audience is uh the brain juices of our uh audience is churning on um let, let me start with one question for Professor Otterbeck and, and this comes uh this has to do with the welfare element of Islam, the fact that you know, there's an obligation to give zakat, and also uh, there's a lot of encouragement to give optionally through sadaqah, which, which also may be seen as inherently political. But at the same time, you know, um, when these Islamic charities operate, they also um, tend to become or, or be seen and perceived as more principled than some of their uh, politicians in their own countries and also there's a lot of economic inequality there so could you give some examples of how much space this link up or this partnership between charities and artists have in for them to operate you know
1: well uh, actually it's it's a great question actually because um, most of the concerts that awakening arranges are charity concerts and uh, I've discussed with one of the guys in the charity and they said, you know, they really need us for their popularity. And I said, how do you mean that? Well, it's not only us tagging along with them, getting an opportunity to uh, to collect money for different uh, um, objections, but it's also the artists launching themselves in collaboration uh, with uh, the, the charities. But that has a even yet another layer because the civil engagement thought it taps into an ethics that is truly important for the the company and that's the ethics of of being sort of a stand-up member of society let's call it that Uh, that since you have certain riches and they portray themselves as sort of rich middle class they also have obligations and they have the company has also started their own um, a charity organization and do charity work pretty vit- widely. So this is both a way of, of commercially engaging with an audience. It's an ethics that is deeply rooted in Islam, as you're pointing out. It's also an ethic that is com- communicable, that you can communicate to an audience, both inside and outside uh, the Muslim faith, and um, a very respectable one. You can work for UNHCR, for example, as Mahal does, as a special ambassador, where where your engagement sort of gives you a moral ground, which, again, then, just supports the claim that we are Islamically motivated or faith-driven artists, which, again, then, gives them the political uh, platform to speak their minds about civil society because they are seen as authentic so charity ties into this very very much and uh, then again which charities do they cooperate with uh, quite a number of them have that kind of uh, muslim uh, brotherhood background like um, islamic relief who is wrong to describe as an uh, muslim background or uh, yeah. sorry a muslim uh, brotherhood organisation now but it definitely was started in those environments and still uphold a number of contacts. And so does penny appeal or human appeal, etc. But that's not least because anyone who was socially engaged in the 80s, 90s in, um, in anything with a Muslim background in Europe and had a Sunni background, they very often were informed by the Muslim Brotherhood or Muslim Brotherhood-ish movements like the Turkish equivalent the Moroccan equivalent or the Tunisian equivalent
0: yeah yeah thank you for for your very elaborate answer we've got a couple of questions coming in and, and probably I'll follow-up with this question from uh about um his question is how do record labels draw the line in such a gray area when uh, there is a political element involved uh, in some of their performances and I think this this has a ref, this makes reference to your earlier example uh, where you showed uh, the president, Indonesian presidential candidate Pawo uh, Subianto uh, mm. where Mahir had his, performed the gig at, at, at his uh, before his campaign and of course now he's defense minister and not not mm. the, the ultimate aim that he was hoping for. but I think this question really says you know it's looking for how, how do these record labels, draw the line in, in such a great area. And, and if I if I may, I would add one more question on top. And in comparison with, I mean, between this example and the one that you brought up earlier on Erdogan where, where Mahar also performed, and, and he went down to embrace uh, Erdogan as opposed to you know, his, his refusal to mingle with the Indonesian politicians on stage, in the other example. So what, I mean, is there a reason for this or was this, I mean, do you have any personal reasons or or what was this about? So so two connecting questions for you there, Professor off the back.
1: Right, Uh, please remind me if if there's anything I forget. So I I think let's start with a more theoretical angle to it, but I won't forget the the, the question as such. I think that when we study political movements and uh, when we study in this case than a commercial company uh, we very often study them in retrospect we look backwards in time but when they act they never know what's around the corner they never know if they're going to succeed with a campaign uh if they made the wise choice or not uh that that is visible afterwards after the fact so one of the the benefits of studying uh, but also one of, of the plights of studying a company in existence that is developing all the time is that it's they I can see how they just wing it basically they they take a chance and then afterwards they say oh that wasn't the smartest move <clears throat> so they made quite quite a number of mistakes so I discussed with Maher why he didn't engage uh, with the politicians but he was puzzled because he was not sort of prearranged and they went up and danced. And according to Maha's morals and ethics, he can't dance on stage because dance is sin. So his bodily movements have to be sort of restricted when he sings. He has, over the years, managed to, uh, to have tricks and, of the trade filling up the stage. But in the beginning, he's rather stale, actually. He's just standing around in a suit, looking like a professor at a conference, and with a microphone walking around on stage. And when they then breach the protocol by being part of another culture where it's not problematic to dance because it's not sort of a general thing everywhere in Islamic Sunni revivalist circles. In Malaysia, Indonesia, the audience dance in a way that the audience do not dance in Europe. In West Africa, when they play, the audience really dance, but not in Morocco. they prefer to sit and it's very gendered also who can do what movements and in this case a number of female 80s also went on and danced so maher was flabbergasted he didn't know what to do so he felt pushed up the stage, ended up just by the keyboard player and finishing the song and eventually they moved down the stage, and he was criticized for this in media and he was not uh, very happy about that uh, because He was simply taken by surprise. When it comes to the Erdogan example, this was planned. So he went down, he knew what he was doing, Erdogan was prepared, they hugged. So that's a different situation. Uh, When it comes to the, the company's strategies then, well, they try to strategize what can they do, what can't they do. Uh, but since, as I mentioned towards the end, collaboration partners might be re-evaluated two, three years later. And then there is the collaboration. So can you look into the future? No, you can't. So the situation with Muslim Brotherhood is, is very clear. For example, they published quite a lot of Syrian Muslim Brotherhood literature in uh, the beginning of the 2000s. Uh, they don't do that anymore. But they still have that. I mean. The books are still there, and some of them are still in print. So uh, they haven't sort of taken a distance to it. Uh, equally, a good example is um, the artist uh, Hamsa Namira. Now, Hamsa was picked up in Egypt, um, made his first record with Awakening, and then I think he produced three with Awakening, and his songs were picked up by a number of people. Uh, the librarian at uh, AKC, where I work, He's Egyptian, he's in no way associated with the Muslim Brotherhood or anything like that. He loves the songs. Hamsan Amira himself distanced himself from the Muslim Brotherhood say, I've never been part and I don't particularly like them. But the Muslim Brotherhood, they loved his songs because they were had an Islamic element, but they basically talk about freedom from corruption, uh, clearing up the state and, and sort of opening up society. And the secular middle class, even the, the metal heads in Egypt and the Islamists, they basically want the same thing. Uh, so they can use each other's song. I, I assume that most Muslim Brotherhood people will not go around humming metal tunes, but that's just my prejudice. But Hamza Namira amira was sort of the perfect crossover. He covered all the bases. But the problem here is that Awakening has their main office since a number of years in Cairo. Uh, So, when Hamza Namira got his songs banned on Egyptian radio, because they were associated and used by the Muslim Brotherhood activists, uh, Hamsa said that, well, maybe it's time to, to move out of the country for a period. So he moved to London. And in London, he realized that he wanted to get more politically engaged in the situation. And he started um, a a TV channel together with a friend addressing the situation in Egypt and eventually reached a conclusion uh, together with uh, the awakening people that he cannot continue producing his material uh, with a contract with awakening because that will endanger the office in Cairo. So they then made the evaluation that Hamsa becomes a liability so they drop the contact, hoping that there will be sort of forgiving any earlier association. So they they're playing it, they're winging it, they're chancing it, uh, and that's how you have to to run a company like this because there's there's no um, there's no previous company with a success. They have made a global company, a global Islamic media company that is basically uncomparable. There are others, but that are not as big as this mostly regional or local or national yeah I didn't forget any aspects of the question
0: no you covered everything oh, no you. so uh, there was that whole interesting aspect of sin but we'll come back to to that later and, and when I when I read some of your work including the the chapter that of your upcoming book that I had the privilege to, to to read is you know it, it sort of reminds me of of uh, Bob Marley's songs, but of course this is applies to a different context when we talk about justice, uh, social responsibility, and things like that. So now we'll move on to the next question we have from the floor, uh, from Alexandra Dick, who thanks you for, for the talk, and the questions are, what are the pop elements of Islamic pop, firstly, and how deeply rooted is Islamic pop in Arabic music tradition, most importantly in the maqam system? So that's, that's the questions.
1: Great question. And um, let me first start with um, a sort of a caveat saying that I'm not a musicologist. Uh, you might be, uh, but uh, I'll answer as to my ability, OK? So what pop elements are there? Well, if we look at, um, uh, we'll, let, let's approach the songs from outside. Um, They are packaged in the same way that pop music and rock music and other sort of medialized music is. Uh, They are produced in a similar way. They have a similar length of the songs, that is the three to five minutes length, if not sort of breaking protocol for a specific song. Um, The production value is um, uh, one of the things is that it's, Maybe I'm not saying this properly, um, but the the sound level is sort of even all the time. If you're looking at classical music, it might be very low and then it's bang, sort of. But like pop music generally, it's it's sort of a very even uh, sound output level. Instruments used, uh, the production tools used are the same, and actually it is the same people. And uh, let me... Be slightly more elaborate with that. I'll, I'll have to search a document here that I have open and um, read you a, a short pack passage. Oh no. Okay, I'll I'll improvise instead. Oh, here it is. So um, the people who do the mixing and producing, for example. Um, American uh, Tom Coyne, who has won a number of awards, including seven Grammys, mastered Mahazane's last album, and he has worked with, among others, Bruno Mars, De La Soul, Ariana Grande, Lady Gaga, Tokyo Hotel, and um, also new kids on the block, Adele, Taylor Swift, One Direction, Beyoncé, Amy Winehouse, etc. And um, he actually has also worked with call and the gang in James Brown in a distant past. So the people giving them the finish, the, the production finish are the ones who are producing the hit material for the world. So it actually sounds very much the same. Now, what kind of music is there? Well, uh, depending on the artist, uh, Maher is one of the broadest. So he goes from pop reggae, soul ballads, um, r and he particularly likes, but he also his his new record will be marked by contemporary arab pop that makes exquisite use of the makam systems and i know that he's a hard-working artist i uh maher is um and i we have sort of a secret language together because we we're both swedish in that sense he's lebanese swedish i grew up in sweden so uh we can speak swedish to each other and, and when on tour we've been chatting about quite a lot and I know how hard he works with his voice. He started out as a keyboard player uh, who could sing but then being staged all the time performing performing he realized that this is not going to go well with my voice if I don't train it so he had the economy to hire one of the best vocal coaches in Sweden and he's all the time working with his voice and you can hear it on the records how he develops and right now um, he has developed his skills of singing um, Arabic makams. He wasn't as skilled as he is now, let's say just two, three years ago. It really, really worked. Now he has good help from his good friend Masoud Curtis, who's also on the same label, who is in his turn from Northern Macedonia, from the Turkish minority there. And he's trained in, um, in, uh, classical Islamic Nasheed singing from a very young age, and was all before awakening um, um, contracted him. He almost had a career in Turkey and in, in the same circles, but more sort of nationally in, in Turkey. Um, so he's, he's very skilled and, and I can hear that he and Mahar is, is working together with Mahar's skills. So now he is he, um, also his Arabic has appro- improved over the years. When he started uh, giving interviews in the beginning of his career, he rather preferred to speak English rather than Arabic, uh, with, even with Arabic journalists, but now he's fluent, so he has a new confidence approaching uh, Arabic music, or Arab music, sorry. Um, <clears throat> Hamza Namira works with sort of a pop form, rock form, and Arabic music at the same time, while Raif basically makes uh, American uh, singer, songwriter, guitar music. His latest album is recorded in Nashville with Nashville uh, studio musicians. Just giving sort of some sense of it. While uh, Sami Youssef is classically schooled (coughs) at uh, a conservatory, sorry, uh, in uh, piano and violin, and um, also has studied classical Iranian instruments for his dad who is a proficient musician and was uh taught him to play different uh, traditional iranian music so he went from pop and now he's more performing in let's call it he called it spiritic sort of spiritual world music yeah that's sort of are I, you I, happy with that alexandra you you probably know something about this music maybe you want to add something about from a more
0: sort of. I'm not sure if uh, Alexandra wants to unmute herself. Oh, well, it's open open invitation. Yeah, but. Yeah, I can do that. Uh, thanks so much for the answer. I'm, I'm happy with it. Thank you. <laughs> All right, great. Thank you for your question and thank you to Professor Alterback for the answer. Uh, we have another question from the floor uh, from Mohammed Asad uh, and, and I'm going to Put a couple more questions to his. Uh, so his question is: Does Maher Zain, which you, you just talked whom you just talked about in your, your last answer, does Maher Zain and Awakening Records stimulate the emergence of other pop Islamic singer worldwide? And and that's the first part of the question. And 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 the second and if not third part of the of this question is goes beyond you know a bit of pop music. You covered new publicness in Saudi Arabia before. And you talked about the pop music scene, which which kicked off in 2007 in in a mall in Jeddah. And and the whole pop music scene inspired or reflected how young people wanted to lead their lives in in the kingdom. So have you been following this development since? Because a lot of things have changed since then, since you released that article in 2012. So, and now of course we are under a new vision, Vision 2030. So is there a new sort of um, um, vision for music, pop music and, and how is this uh, associated with religion? So these are the two parts to, of the questions.
1: Great, um, does it stimulate? Uh, I mean, it's a fascinating question. There's a lot of impulses in the back of my mind now. I'm sort of trying to sort them out. Uh, Yes, I I would definitely say so. And how would I know that? Well, uh, Awakening Company is all the time keeping track of cover versions of their songs. And Mahers songs, some of them, they are covered millions of times. No, sorry, not millions, uh, uh, hundreds of times the reason why I said millions is that his uh, most popular videos are viewed uh, millions of times. Actually, his most popular is more than 300 views on on the official YouTube channel. So that's a big success. And and I know that people are name dropping um, his name when they're talking about their initial artistry. But more widely and so, you might not know, and I'm not entirely certain if, but which I mentioned that, but I come from Islamic studies. So not Quranic studies or anything like that, but more sort of sociology of religion, Islamic studies. So what I'm always looking for is sort of what happens with Islam? What does things produce about Islam? But in this case, I talk more about the political part of it, which is of course also what's happening to Islam. But one of the interesting things that this pop Nasheed trend is doing is providing soundtracks to people's lives. I know for sure that people get married to some of these songs and then it's the couple's song. Uh, I know for sure that some people break iftar with this music playing. I know for sure that some people uh, resist listening to music during Ramadan, but still makes a nasheed playlist as a uh, compensating for not listening to the other music. So it sort of fills spaces in a way similar to, to Christian uh, Christmas music. It becomes sort of a celebratory music and the artists know that. So they make aid songs, um, they make Ramadan songs, they, they consciously tailor material to be consumed as soundtracks to people's lives. So yes, I, I definitely think they stimulate, I definitely think they inspire. And I would even go further and say that I know that the artists provoke reactions in theology. So some people have taken up their pen or rather their keyboard and are writing violently against this new pop machine trend saying that, right brothers, I think that you are, that you are spreading Islam. I know that you feel that way, but what you're doing is wrong. You are using the devil's instruments. You're imitating the West you are failing in your role as Muslim by doing this. While other theologians also pick up their keyboard then and write about the legality of music. For example, uh, Abdullah al-Judai uh, wrote a book on uh, the legality of music. It's like a 300-page thick Arabic book about why mus- uh, musical instruments are not a problem in themselves. Is rather it uh, ties all it all boils down to what is awakening in your heart. So if you if you listen to music and you just want to go out sinning against Islamic regulations, well, it's obviously not for you, is it? But if that is not happening, then it's no problem. And a guitar is just a guitar, it's it's like a gun. Uh, if you shoot someone with it, it's wrong. Well, hopefully it's wrong we can make a long argument about that, but let's not go into that. But you can also use it for target practices or or whatever. It's not necessarily wrong. Uh, When it comes to the the Saudi articles, I'm very happy to hear that at least one person read the article. And uh, I can tell you, Mohammed, that uh, the idea that I had, and this is strategizing in a similar way, like awakening. My idea was that if I made a thorough article about saudi arabia and i found a really good case <clears throat> and get that published i could get some funding and finally have the ability to start working on saudi arabia being uh, i also contacted people for invitations etc but i never got the funding so i never followed up and i haven't been following uh, the situation as closely as probably you have i know there's been tremendous changes the only other thing uh, that I've done is that I helped uh, an uh, undergraduate student, actually, to make a, um, uh, a dissertation about the Saudi black metal band Al-Namrod, and uh, helped him with the interviews with the band. And eventually we actually, together with another guy who wrote on black metal in Turkey, we published that in Popular Muse, no, in Contemporary Islam uh, under the speculative heading, I am Satan. We thought we would get some readers by, by putting that kind of title. And actually we got like 15,000 downloads of that article, probably because of the title. But So I haven't been, been able to follow the development uh, as closely as I would have loved. Um, was there any other aspect of the question that I sort of
0: forgot about? I think I think that's all. Uh, but we've got we, we, and thanks for the answers again. We've got we've got a couple hands raised in, on the floor. So uh, we'll start with uh, Ilyas, my colleague here at the institute. I think he has a question for you. Ilyas, can you could you unmute yourself? Thank you. Yeah. Hi. I can't start my video. That's normal, right? That's fine, you can, it's all right, you can ask your question. Okay, Uh, yeah, thanks, uh, Professor Otterbeck, It was a very fascinating uh, presentation. I just wanted to ask you, you know, the Islamic revival has been around since, like, the 1980s, and, you know, like you said, there's been popular Islamic pop music acts like uh, Raihan since the 1990s, at least. So I'm wondering, you know, have the dominant or popular themes in Islamic pop changed over the decades? I mean, as I understand it, you know, the 1980s was something of a more... Uh, overtly political time for the Islamic revival, so I'm just wondering, and I'm also wondering, you know, are there any noteworthy differences between Islamic pop in, say, Asia compared to the West? And I just have a bonus question, if you have time. Yeah, I'm just very curious. What is the place of women in Islamic pop? You know, does the framework or landscape of Islamic pop allow for any high-profile mu- female music acts? Yes, those are my questions, thank you very much.
1: Ilyas, you you basically covered um, all the book. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where to start. Uh, Let let me start from the end. I think that might be a good way. So uh, one of the things with Awakening uh, is that they don't have female artists. And um, that sort of puzzled me already from the beginning. So I've I've discussed it with uh, uh, Sharif, the CEO a number of times and um, when I was on tour with them in 2017, and we were approaching London, and one of them came up so, as a surprise for you this time. And I said, what, what, I won't tell you. And then they launched a female artist on stage, uh, a German Moroccan uh, woman uh, who took the stage and sang a few songs, but she never made a record. And um, I, I, I know a little too much about the situation, and it's personal, and I will not reveal anything. But let's just say that um, Awakening, and she did discontinue the contract, even though she had recorded 18 songs. Um, So they have still failed to do this. There are a number of women artists uh, in Kowali, for example, which is not sort of Nasheed or Islamic pop, but there are a number of local ones, and especially in Indonesia, and Malaysia, you have uh, people doing uh, this kind of of, uh, clean pop, not necessarily Islamic pop, but they will be dressed in modest fashion and uh, not sing too overtly sort of drug romantic songs, but rather sort of uh, about love and and what have you, but in a nice way. Uh, Yuna is one of them, of course, uh, the superstar. So, and and in the US and in um, Europe, There are a number of hip-hop acts, like uh, Poetic Pilgrimage, for example. Muna Haidar is one of my favorites. Uh, Anyone here who is interested in decolonialization should listen to Muna Haidar, Barbarian. It's a great song to play for students, if you have such. Uh, It really blows their mind. Uh, Muna is, um, she has an MA in uh, philosophy of religion and uh, She's a, a highly clever artist, I would say. Muna Haida. Haidar. And, uh, no one has said this, I think. Well, it might have been said in the introduction, but um, as an Islamic studies person, I, I've sort of specialized in Islam in Europe. So that's why I follow Awakening, sprung out of Europe. So it's, it's sort of still my field. Um, but when it comes to the difference between uh, West and East, yeah, there is definitely uh, certain differences. Um, the artists that Awakening promote are generally sort of second generation migrants, so if we can say so, or migrants themselves. Uh, they have a Pakistani background, Moroccan, Egyptian background, but they also contracted one artist from the Gulf, one Egyptian, and now one Moroccan, for example. Um, they are broadening their their artistic endeavor all the time, and um, they're picking up on different music trends. But you also have, I mean, you have the established music tradition. The as uh, Alexander was pointing out, sort of the Arab pop, for example, which not necessarily is is outside the fold of Islam all the time. I mean. If you take the classics like Om Om Kudum, she was having a number of of religious songs on her agenda. And um, people are not stranger to to flaunt in their religion in lyrics, for example, or framing it as such. What was special with the growth, as you pointed out from the 80s and onwards, and actually we have to go slightly further back, uh, 1970s in Syria, where mother, uh, where Muslim Brotherhood um, people and um, people associated with them started using the the very simple technique of a, of a cassette recorder, a cassette recorder. Sorry, so you just put play and record, and you sang into the recorder, and then you got a crude song. Uh, so some of the first people did that with very little schooling, singing political nasheeds and then circulated those on cassettes. Those became popular and eventually other people joined in with more musical skills. Among them a guy called Abu, uh, Abu ratib who after a while found it uh, better to leave Syria for Jordan where he started to build up a music organization of Islamic music, eventually ended up in exile in the US and was instrumental on getting music on stage at Islamic conferences actually Cat Stevens, or now Yusuf Islam. He started singing because Abu uh, Abu Ratib pressured him to go on stage with him to sing a song after giving up music. And Abu Ratib knows the awakening people. Um, They all know him. It's sort of a grandfather of this uh, movement. But you have a different trajectory in Malaysia and Indonesia where you had sort of religious nasheed bands with sort of full blown instrumental bands playing in the 70s i've only sort of i haven't really studied those i've just read about them and listened to them a little and, and there is sort of a long tradition in um, southeast asia of um, of uh, musical artists that refer to islam but from my interesting uh, my perspective what became really interesting what uh, al-arkam Bert Barendrecht wrote a really great uh, article about the the Arkham sound where he looked into the different artists that go all the way back to the 80s that sort of made these vocals only recordings very quickly spread them on cassettes the same uh, sort of process and how that developed into a band called the Dhikr who was slightly more sort of organized and how Dhikr became Rehan eventually. And uh, it's it's such an interesting trajectory. And if you go down into an individual environment, you can follow these lines of political Islamic singing or Sufi Islamic singing, which I haven't even mentioned yet. I mean, Bara grew up listening to Hamas music, but also to Tunisian Sufi music. And since he grew up in London, he also grew up listening to Blur, the British band, and koali music because you couldn't avoid koali music in the 80s and 90s in britain so <laughs> everything's sort of just intermingled and because of that two of the songs i think it is on, on the debut album by uh, semi yusuf are actually just translations of uh, nusrat Fatih ali khan uh, koali songs so i might have gone in circles here and uh, but i'm happy with the answer do I need to elaborate anything? No, oh, thanks, Professor. That was very,
0: very comprehensive. Thank you. It's it's
1: more comprehensive than written down in the book because it's, <laughs> I've just took pieces at the back of my mind from chapter like four, seven. And it's, it's, this is spread out across the book, and part of the book is an analysis of masculinity, because of the fact that uh, I needed to to analyze the ethical masculinity on stage. And in the production, and it ties into the, the question about charity, et cetera. So it's it's a it's a rather
0: strong emphasis on
1: ethics in the book.
0: Right. Okay, thank you, Ilias, and thank you, Professor off the back. Um we have a couple more questions, and then we'll finish off finish off with, with this too. One from my colleague Fauzan about he asked, um, you mentioned briefly just now about how there are different religious rulings of music in Islam between its permissibility or otherwise? So, how does awakening records contend with these different rulings? So, that's his question. And I believe we have another question from uh, the floor. Uh, my colleague Asif Shuja has his hand raised. So, I'll invite him to unmute himself and ask his question. Asif, please. Uh, thank you, uh, Clemens. Uh- Uh, One question that I was about to ask was indeed related to Sufism, which uh, our honorable guest has already answered, uh, because it's very intriguing that uh, we are talking about Islam and its relationship with music, and we're not talking about Sufism, especially, uh, you know, Sufism as uh, 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 this was one genre which was also seen in South Asia. But my particular question to you, uh, sir, is uh, about the terminology, uh, the term that you have used, Islamic pop, uh, because so far as I know, uh, nobody has ever, to my knowledge, uh, has used this terminology. And I understand the amount of challenge that the usage of this term, uh, you know, poses. So I would like to know the genesis of this idea, your role in it, and your journey so far with this terminology. Thank you so much.
1: Wow, well, uh, a great question again, uh, both of them. Uh, when it comes to the legality of music, as, as you probably all know, most of you know, I guess, uh, there's a long discussion. I mean, it's one of those evergreen discussions that is probably never going to be solved. Uh, there are those who who really resist the idea of music as such, saying that, well, music is the imitation of uh, the ihsan, the beauty of the creation that uh, God created. So, uh, the devil created that imitation to draw the attention of man, instead of us concentrating on uh, the aesthetics of, of uh, the religion, the Quran, uh, the recitation of the Quran, etc. So they, they are the, sort of the, the ultimate hardcore ones. And then there are layers, people saying, I don't know, of course, music is part of our, our genetics, and we sing for our children we sing when we work and that's all allowed and they use hadith to explain that but then they draw a hard boundary between um, the sexes for example etc and then there are those who say that well popular music is it's not really um, if, if it's innocent it's okay but most of it is vulgar so not even deal with it uh, and they i'm also talking about historically here saying that the music of the taverns where they uh, have jokes and and, and dirty lyrics. That's simply not allowed. But for Sufis, for example, in the Sama, uh, it's essential because music points to the creation and uh, well-played, philosophically grounded music definitely sort of rhymes with the cosmic music and therefore is a vehicle for, for meditation and for fana and bakar. in in Sufa rituals, sort of the the joining of the soul with the origin. So, and then you can find those today, not least to say that no, there's no real problem with music unless you, you glorify violence or or glorify drugs or whatever. Um, Music in itself is is not a problem. And that's seemed to be a a more and more winning um, um, side. So when, when When Awakening launched their first artist, again connecting to that, they didn't know how the reactions were going to be. So they made a a vocals only album, and that's been the trend in political Islam. So they choose that form that was developed, as I mentioned, the 70s, the vocals only, adding hand clapping, some drums, and that is still used uh, by some groups, but even groups like Hezbollah, and Hamas have now added instruments. But the trajectory is not immediate. So the big first sort of Pop Nasheed production, as was pointed out, with Rehan in the, in the mid 90s with one of the pioneers. And then the first 10 years were basically vocals and drums. So when um, Sami Yusuf's album was produced, that was done. But what they did also is that they use a production technique called pads. So pads are digital instruments and you can make a pad out of a bo- of a voice. So if I sing oh into a sort of a, the machine and then I spread it out with a chord, taking the one th- third and fifth, for example, you get the chord and it's oh, much broader like this. And then you can build up soundscapes in the production with these pads. And that's what they did they they increased the production value made it sound like like uh, huge environments and adding choirs in different ways but not using instruments um and they did that because they didn't know how people will understand it um sammy was not happy about that because he came from it of from from his father's side he came from a, a traditional side where music is musical instruments are used and no one would ever say that there's a problem with them. So he uh, insisted on the second record being uh, recorded with instrumentation. But when they did that, they once again didn't know how people would react. They took a risk. Some people simply said that, no, 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 we're not going to have you on stage with instruments. But such was his popularity that he broke through and they carved out the space for in Islamic uh, gatherings at charity concerts for the full band. And eventually other, other people also followed suit. And it's a process there around 2003, 2006, where more and more bands are, uh, or recording artists are adding instruments on stage. So they, they pushed it. And this El judai that I talk, talked about, uh, who is a, a, I think he's a Hanafi scholar, possibly a Maliki scholar, but he lives in Leeds right now. And he was once a teacher of um, both bara and sharif he was intrigued by this since long but because of the explosion of the pop, of the music and because he knew some of the main actors he started writing up his notes and made the book in 2007 and the the second album with instruments of sami Yussi came out in 2005. so it's a theological reaction to what they did Now, some people were pushing uh, them to form a Sharia council that could advise them, but they didn't want that because they didn't want to go against people. They want to push and see according to their understanding what things are. And and in the meantime, as they've had the company, Sharif has educated himself and actually then presented a dissertation at El Azar in Sharia, stressing the environment, uh, the The art and discussing about ethics. So he's he's one of the world-leading theological experts of the subject himself. So he doesn't want a sharia council. And he and the others think that no, no, there's no, all of us have grown up with music. We can't see that it harms us. We it's we we sort of do not. Uh, think that that's a valid explanation, but we do respect the ones who do so. So from the second album with Sammy Yusuf, they started producing parallel versions. So they did one with instruments and one vocals only. And they've continued to do that with the largest artist <coughs> issuing for the Gulf market and for others who would prefer an album without instruments, sort of respecting that interpretation also even though they themselves do not agree. If we look at the very nitty gritties, Raaf and Hamza Namira, who are both guitarists, they don't have any objection to an electric distorted guitar. Maher, however, doesn't think it's fitting for his music for ethical, moral, Islamic reasons. He does not want the distorted guitar. He hasn't embraced that yet. But we don't know what's up around the band. They're pushing it all the time. So regarding the the other thing about the terminology, well, that was one of the the big things in the last interview that I had with uh, Sharif. Um, He'd actually read the book and the manuscript and I wanted to to discuss with him about some some issues. And at the end of the day, I said, I don't know what to call your music anymore. And I explained why Uh, I said, in the beginning, you call it nasheed and then you let that go, you write uh, in Arabic you write uh, not munshid you write Fannan, artist, instead of, of sort of singer of songs, and you, you never use the nasheed branding but all your fans calls your music nasheed. And um, sometimes you just move around the genre so and when I use the shorthand, which. As if you rightly found the shorthand Islamic pop music. Um, I use that for a very specific purpose in the book, but outside, I, I very often use it as a shorthand. And I discussed that uh, with Sharif, and he said, Yeah, I don't like it, but I agree with it. And I've actually used it myself. But if I get to decide, I call our music faith driven, faith and value driven. That's what I call it. Because if I call it Islamic, that's a pretension saying that this is Islamic and I'm not comfortable doing that Um, and and that's also the words actually of one of the artists Raf, saying I'm not comfortable of doing that because I don't consider. That I have the right to say to other people, this is Islamic deal with it, they might not think so, so I don't want to use that label, but as a shorthand again. They accepted it so for the book, I developed a terminology where I separated between nasheed, pop nasheed, and Islamic pop music. Um, defining it and trying to use it carefully when I speak. I at times uh, just do the shorthand because it's efe- efficient in a way, but it does cause reactions. Uh, I haven't seen it that many times. I've seen other people write it, but generally it's in the shorthand fashion, not defined. What I define it with is that I separate it musically. So there's Nasheed, which is sort of has a traditional form. There's pop Nasheed that makes explicit reference to it. And then there is Islamic pop music that just fills any form, but lyrically makes references to Islam uh, with the pretension of being understood as positive to Islam and devout, that's how I use it.
0: Thank you, Professor Otterbeck, and I hope that answers your question, Asif, and also to to Fauzan. So, I'm afraid the clock has run out, even though we we do have a couple more questions, and I wanted to come back to the theme of sin, but with the clock has run out, like I said, so we have come to the end of today's webinar, and I would like to sincerely thank our guest speaker, Professor Jonas Otterbeck once again for taking the time to deliver such a wonderful lecture.
1: Can I add one thing? Yes, yes please. Um, you know how, how the book market is today. So the book will come out in August and it will be heavily overpriced for, for to be bought by um, libraries. But the British Bookmark has changed lately. So they think that if they also at the same time produce an e-book that is open access. That sort of gives a spin to the book and they sell more of the, the overpriced hardback. So in August, it will be available through our web pages at the AKU ISMC, but also Edinburgh University Press for free as an ebook.
0: Yep, definitely. And then of course, congratulations once again on the upcoming book. Once again, The Awakening of Islamic Pop Music released by Edinburgh University Press and authored and none other than Professor Jonas Otterbeck. Uh, the link to the, the book is uh, in the chat box now uh, on Edinburgh University Press's website under the Music and Performance in Muslim Context series. So you may click on the link to, to have a look at the book. So once again, I thank uh, Professor Jonas Otterbeck and I thank our audience for being so engaging today uh, with our speaker. And on behalf of MEI, Middle East Institute here, I hope to see you again on the rest of our events for the year. So thank you. And to the ISMC at Aga Khan, we will stay in touch. And I'm sure there are opportunities for future collaboration. Thank you, Professor Yunus.
1: Thank you very much for, for the fantastic questions. The quality of the questions were amazing. Thank you.
0: Thank you.